Welcome to Grumlaw. We are so glad that, that you are here today. We're so glad that you carved out some time your week to make Grumlaw a part of your week, particularly if this is your first time with us. I say this just about every single week, but I really do mean it. We know that, that walking into a new place, even as an adult, can feel a little bit intimidating, but we're so glad you kind of overcame those fears and you decided to walk through our door. So honestly, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. As Stephanie just mentioned, uh, we are entering into part two of a series that we started last week, again, called Radical. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go to Grumlaw slash messages and get yourself caught up there. You can listen to the messages there. You can watch them there. You can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you may happen to grab your podcast. And you hear me say this every week, you know, go online and catch yourself up. But I think it's really, really important because basically if you weren't here last week, and, and that's no shame to you, but if you weren't here last week, it's like you're walking into a movie 30 minutes after it's began. And now you're that person kind of like humble and bumbling, you know, through the aisle. And you're like, hey, well, you're looking in over your buddy, like, hey, what, what's going on here? Who's that guy? You don't want to be that guy. So you can always go here and catch yourself up. Obviously, we always give a quick recap, but this is indeed the better option. We hope that some of you, you've made that a part of your weekly rhythm. If you're not here on Sunday mornings, you go online and catch yourself up. We hope that more and more and more of you do uh, take advantage of that. Now, the inspiration for this entire series uh, lies in the fact that if you were to pick up any historical document that records the rise of the early Christian church, and when we say church, I want you to do your best to not think about a building. In fact, I said this last week, uh, our, our word church, the English word church, does a miserable job at capturing what Jesus originally intended. The original word is this word ecclesia, and ecclesia means community or congregation, assembly. It's talking about a group of people, a community of people. But if you were to pick up any historical document that, again, records the rise of the early Christian church, whether that be the Bible and specifically the book of Acts or any secular uh, documentation for that matter, you would find that it sure sounds a whole lot different from what we are experiencing today. In fact, I went so far as to say last week, and I believe this, I think it's unrecognizable. It doesn't even sound like the same movement. But, but here is the good news. I, I think we all have an opportunity to change course. We can continue with business as usual in the Christian life defined by the culture around us or in I hope we lean this direction, or we can take an honest look at Jesus and dare to ask what the consequences might be if we really believed and obeyed him. And I hope, if you show up here week to week, I hope that we are a group of people that are willing to be honest with ourselves, that we're willing to ask ourselves those tough questions, because following Jesus, as we discovered last week, it definitely has a cost. In fact, following Jesus means you abandon you. It means you Abandon your way. It means you give up your own way. You, you leave safety for danger. You leave certainty for uncertainty. But I think that you'll find, as I have found in my life and so many other people have found in their lives, it's worth it. That when you go God's way, it is worth it 100% of the time. Even in those moments where you feel like you are giving up so much, in the end, it always ends up being worth it. My best friend is a guy by the name of Joel Trainer. Uh, he actually planted a church down in Gahanna, Ohio. He's, he launched about exactly a month after we launched here. He's always been a little bit behind me. That's a joke. Uh, but he launched again, Gahanna, Ohio. It's a suburb right outside of Columbus. We want to hold that against him. Those people really, really need Jesus. I don't like Ohio State at all. Uh, anyway, so uh, just a just a heartless jab at him. Uh, but anyway, he, uh, when I first graduated college, me and Joel took a job working at the exact same place. You've heard me talk about it before called Beulah Beach down in Vermilion, Ohio. Uh, and it was awesome. I got to work with my best friend. We thought we were kind of this two-headed monster, freshly graduated from college, ready to take on the world. And we were both serving as program directors uh, at this camp. But right before that first summer was about to begin, began Joel uh, got what he would call the call of a lifetime. 
he got the opportunity to do something that he had been hoping that he would do for his entire life. Uh, Joel is a lifelong supporter of Survivor, the television show. You know that show's still on TV. It's like unbelievable. Uh, he loves, loves, loves Survivor, still watches it to this day. And he had always dreamt about like being on the show Survivor. And he would send in the application tapes and we would just razz him for it because we'd make sure they end up on YouTube. And like, we'd laugh and they're so funny. We're like, man, these videos are actually kind of funny. You might very well end up on this. And wouldn't you know, it's about a month before camp is supposed to begin. And he gets a call, not to be on Survivor, but he gets invited to be one of the people on the dream team. Now, I had no idea what this meant either, like most of you probably don't. But what Survivor does is they basically bring in these test dummies that before the show actually airs, they go through and do all the trials and all the challenges to make sure that that stuff's going to work, that the challenges are going to work, that they're not going to get there and it's going to end in 30 seconds, and like make sure that's going to translate well to television. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of better than being on the show because you get to stay in like these five-star resorts, you get three amazing meals every day, and you get paid really, really well. And he's sitting there laboring over this like, oh my goodness, this is the call of a lifetime. I've really always wanted to be on Survivor. I mean, this is pretty great. And I'm being a terrible friend. I'm telling him, you should definitely do that. Whatever, we'll figure it out without you. I mean, you're going to regret this if you don't take this. Like, do it, do it, do it, do it. And he prays about it for about a week. And eventually, at the end of the week, he, he says no. He turns down Survivor and... He stays at Beulah Beach for the summer. Now, fast forward, the summer comes and goes, and you know it's probably months after the, the summer is concluded, and, and it kind of dawned on me, oh yeah, there was a real possibility that you might not have been here for the entire summer. And I looked at him, I said, do you regret that? Like, are you bummed out that you didn't go on Survivor? I mean, think about that, because like the show was getting close to air by that point. I was like, I mean, you have to regret that, right? And he looked at me with such staunch confidence. He looked at me, he's like, not at all. And we sat there for like an hour just talking about the incredible things that God had done over the summer. Every single week, we'd see 30, 40, 50 kids put their faith in Jesus. I saw Joel used in ways that summer that, that I wasn't sure God could quite use him that way. We, we have a staff. We had a staff there of about 80 college students that would come in for the summer. And the way that he led them and led these young people towards Jesus, I mean, it was staggering. He's never going to regret making that decision. And church, this is at the core of Christianity. Following Jesus means giving up, again, your own way. In a world that prizes promoting you, Jesus tells us with pretty strong language to crucify our own way. And you figure out, like Joel, that when you abandon you, you're not really giving up anything at all. You're, in fact, gaining more than you ever could in any other way. You abandon it all because you have found something worth, worth losing everything for. And this is Jesus this is the message of Jesus. He is someone worth losing everything for. But, but here's a question, and, and this is kind of be our point of tension here this morning. This is going to be the thing that, that I want us to wrestle with this morning. And, and you can answer this question whether this is your first time stepping into a church or you've been coming to church uh, your entire life. How many Christians, go back, go back. How many Christians do you actually see living like this? I, I, I mean, how many people that, that wear that label of Christian have ever actually abandoned anything at all? Or, or, or you could ask it this way, what looks different? What looks different from the American Christian and the American good person? And what worries me is that I believe that the average person that didn't grow up going to church and, and they didn't grow up in a, in a Christian household would in response to that question ask, well, what is the difference? Seriously, what's the difference between a good person and, and a Christian? Aren't those two things just kind of the same? And if you're a person that's sitting here today and, and you truly follow Jesus, th that should be gut-wrenching. 
That should be heartbreaking that so many people think that way, that the term Christian has somehow just become synonymous with being a good person. Because guess what? This might be news to you. You do not need Jesus to be what our world would consider a good person. I have met plenty of people throughout my life that I think we would all agree are good people that do not wear the label of Christian. They don't swear. They don't cheat on their spouses. They don't look at porn. They don't lie. They don't steal. They don't cheat. They're good husbands. They're good wives. They're good fathers. They're good mothers. They don't lie on their taxes. And guess what? They never show up to church on Sunday mornings. And for those of you that that grew up going to church on Sunday mornings, you might think, well, how can that be? I mean, how do they know? It's because you do not need a Bible to tell you what is right and what is wrong. We all have this little thing that's built inside of our brains called a conscience that instinctively steers us towards what is right and away from what is wrong. And wouldn't you know it, some people through just sheer trial and error have figured out that when you listen to that thing without Jesus involved at all, that your life just kind of goes better for you. That you have less mornings where you wake up and you go, well, what in the heck did I do that for? How am I going to explain that? Life is just better when you listen to your conscience. This would be the argument of one of my in-laws. He doesn't see the need for church. And and we've had these conversations. He's like, why why would I go to church? Because best as he can tell, he's living a pretty good life, a life that I think we all would agree is is a fairly good life. He, he, He works hard for his family. He provides for them. He's a good father. He's a good grandfather. He's a good dad. He, he, he's, a, he, he's a great husband. He doesn't get drunk. I mean, he kind of hits all these checkpoints in his mind that would make him a good person. And best as he can tell, he is living as honorable of a life as most of the Christians that he sees around him. He doesn't understand why when you factor in drive time and getting ready all that, why he would spend two hours on a Sunday morning in a building like this when he could otherwise be sitting at home, sleeping in, watching TV, hanging out with his family. What's so great about being a Christian? He is still looking for the why. Why should I follow Jesus? Think about how sad and depressing that is. That that this guy, he has been on earth for over 50 years. Over 50 years he has spent on earth. And thus far, he has not seen enough evidence that would create in him a desire to follow Jesus. Every single week, between 100 and 200 Christian churches are closing in America. People are walking away from the Christian church at an unprecedented rate, led the way by millennials. And I'm proposing this this radical new idea this morning, that these trends have nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus has not changed. I do not think that people are walking away from the church or are uninterested with being a Christian because of Jesus. And what I'm about to say certainly has the ability to rub some people the wrong way, but that's just kind of the nature of this series, so you'll just have to get over it. Christians are the reason people are uninterested in being Christian. Christians are the reason that people have no desire to be a part of this movement. People like my in-law look at our lives, and and by the way, I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm very much throwing myself under the bus, and they don't see anything all that great. There's nothing too exciting. In their minds, there is nothing worth being a part of. About every three months, I I get a phone call, or uh, actually first, I I get a letter in the mail from the local Kia dealership. Uh, and they write me, and I kind of admire their persistence and their creativity, and they have a whole printout explaining uh, my my current vehicle that my wife drives. She drives a Kia SUV. We're big Kia believers. They're bionic, and they're cheap. 
So that kind of hits my things. Um, but I get this letter, and it has all these details about my vehicle. It has approximate, you know, blue book value on it. And then there's a handwritten note by a salesman that says, hey, your vehicle is in hot demand. Now, I'm not really believing him anymore because it's been in hot demand, apparently, for like the last five years. But still, he writes it nonetheless. Your vehicle's in hot demand. We're really looking for vehicles like yours. And guess what? For no money down, we'll just take your vehicle from you. We can get you into a brand new model of your vehicle for only $250 a month. I think, okay, dude. Do people actually do this? But okay, I mean, he wrote a handlet note. I mean, that's kind of impressive. About a week after I get that in the mail, like clockwork, I get a phone call from the guy. Now, I never answer because I get so many telemarketing calls, but his voicemail is always the same. He's like, hey, I, I hope you got that thing in the mail from me. We'd really like to purchase your vehicle. And he just kind of reiterates the stuff that he already wrote on that note. Now, I, again, I, I never pick up uh, because I probably know myself well enough that, that I would probably not be very gracious to this guy. Like, upon answering, I, I mean, I want to answer one of these times and be like, do you actually get people to bite on this? Well, why, why would I give my vehicle up that, mind you, is paid for so I can take on a car payment? In fact, yours isn't even four-wheel drive. You're trying to get me into two-wheel drive. Why would that make any sense? I mean, do people actually bite on this thing? Why would I do this? And our world is looking at Christianity going, why would I do that? Why would I want to be a part of that? What's so great about Christianity? It's a watered down, lukewarm version of Jesus following that is killing Christianity. Jesus is not the problem. It's this watered down, lukewarm version of Jesus following that is the issue. In an effort to make following Jesus more palatable, easier to digest, we have actually diminished Christianity to a group of people, to a group of good people that happen to meet together for an hour each week on Sunday mornings. And we start dismissing the radical words of Jesus. We hear his teachings and we say things like, no, 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 he couldn't possibly mean that. See, see what Jesus actually meant was this. And we begin to redefine Christianity according to our preferences and what's comfortable for us. We take who Jesus actually is and we twist him into someone that's a bit more comfortable for each and every one of us. Nice, middle-class American Jesus who looks a lot like us, who sounds a lot like us, who is a lot like us. And the danger here, the danger here, is when Jesus is twisted into our image and we gather together, and we say we're worshiping Jesus, and we say we're praising Jesus, it's not the case. We're actually worshiping ourselves. The very thing that made Christianity a, a force to be reckoned with, something that could not be stopped, radical life change and a reckless obedience to whatever Jesus called you to do has gone missing. And just like we saw in that video, I know y'all have some strong opinions on Pepsi and Coke. I mean, I get that. When you put them next to each other and you start taking sips of each, it's hard to tell apart. It's hard to distinguish the difference. People can't tell the difference between Christians and good people. And in turn, and, and this is ultimately what's at stake, and this is why I think this, this should matter for every single one of us. In turn, those people around you that you care about, your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and family members, they don't want anything to do with it. And they're not alone. In fact, Jesus actually didn't want anything to do with it. Jesus, uh, in the book of Revelation, he has some words for this church that had sprouted up, this community of people that had sprouted up in this area called Laodicea. And uh, he says this. He says, I know all the things that you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. He's saying, I've heard about you guys. You follow me when it's convenient. You, you follow me when it kind of works for you. 
But as soon as kind of the going gets tough, you abandon it. You act one way on Sunday morning and you act a completely different way on Friday night. And I'm not a big fan of that. In fact, what Jesus is doing here, give you a little context as to what's going on. This area of Laodicea uh, had always been known for its terrible water supply. In fact, so much so that they built this aqueduct that came from this city to the northwest of them called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis had these hot mineral springs that would come up. And so they built, again, this aqueduct that went from those hot mineral springs all the way to the city of Laodicea. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was gross. It wasn't hot like it had just come out of the spring. It wasn't cold and refreshing. It was tepid. It was lukewarm. It was gross water. It was also filled with minerals. And so it just tasted terrible. And so everybody that would have been hearing this would have been like, oh, okay, yeah, we kind of know what you're talking about. And then they're going, wait, are you comparing us to our gross water? Well, that can't be good. He continues. He goes, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now they're tracking with him. They're going, oh, okay, he's calling us the lukewarm water. That's not good for us. The lukewarm water is gross. It's tepid. It doesn't taste good. We're like lukewarm water. And they're figuring out, and this can get misinterpreted. It's not that that hot is good and cold is bad. He's just saying, I want you to pick one or the other. The lukewarm is what's driving me nuts. None of you like lukewarm. If I was to take a poll right now and ask you guys, okay, do you like your coffee hot, cold, or lukewarm? There might be an argument between the hot and the cold people, but I don't think anybody would be standing and stating their case for lukewarm coffee. My wife does this uh, at least a couple times a week because we have two maniac kids and she puts a you know, cup, a mug, underneath the Keurig machine and then she walks away and two hours later she's like, oh crud, I forgot about that thing. Any other moms do that? Yeah, okay, it happens, right? Never once has my wife walked up to that coffee and gone, oh yeah, I left it here for two hours. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> Perfect. Nope, she does one of two things. Actually, she does one of three things. She either pours it down the drain that's a good use of our money. Or she takes it, she puts it in the microwave and heats it back up. Or three, she gets a cup, fills it with ice, and then pours the coffee over the ice. Nobody likes lukewarm. Jesus is saying, I have no interest, no interest in you living this kind of half-hearted Christian life. I wish that you would just pick one or the other. This version of Christianity that you have come up with that is so far removed from the movement that I stood for, the movement that I died for, I don't want anything to do with it. Your faith is lukewarm. It's as bland as the gross, tepid water that is flowing into your city. I remember years ago when I saw this quote I'm about to show you here, um, and I read it, and it was such a kick in the pants for me, and I hope it doesn't discourage you. I think hopefully it'll motivate you for action as well. This is written by a guy named Francis Chan, uh, who's an author and a pastor out in California. He says, as I see it, a lukewarm Christian is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. To put it plainly, churchgoers who are lukewarm are not Christians. We will not see them in heaven. Whew. I mean, that, that, is, that is a kick to the gut. That can be pretty hard to hear. But when you look at those radical teachings of Jesus, it's undeniable. He's right. We must not water down Christianity that becomes something that is easier to digest for us. Otherwise, before we know it, we will be left with something that is completely unrecognizable from what Jesus actually calls us to. We ended with this statement last week, and it's going to be something that I continue to bring up throughout the series, and I ask you to grapple with whether, whether it's your first time walking into a church, you've been coming to church your entire life. Jesus doesn't require reflection. Jesus requires a response. He doesn't require just mere reflection. He requires action. At its core, the message of Jesus 
God in the flesh, God in a bod, the guy who came down to earth and died and paid the penalties for our sins, for your sins, for my sins, for our mistakes, the guy who predicted his own death and predicted his own resurrection and it actually happened. The message of Jesus doesn't require mere reflection and deep thought. And, mm, what do we think about that? It requires a response. It requires action. But the problem that I see among Christians, particularly this American version of Christianity, is that we have settled for this version of Christianity that in no way resembles the radical behavior of the early Christian church. We love talking about them. We love reflecting on them. We, we love gathering once a week in people's homes and just really thinking, okay, well, what did he actually mean here? But when it comes time to pony up, when it comes time to take radical steps of obedience, to actually put action behind it, no, nah, not so much. That's not for me. Jesus didn't really mean that. No, no, he wouldn't possibly ask me to do that, and we dismiss it. We have settled for this version of Christianity that is completely unattractive, and let's be honest, it doesn't look all that different from those people who do not wear the label of Christian. We must not settle to be a church, a community of people, that merely reflects on Jesus' words, but instead, we actually respond. Because I think there's way more at stake than we realize. Our world, again, the people that you really care about, friends and neighbors and coworkers, family members, they need people who are not content living a lukewarm faith, but those that are actually living radically for him. That is what, we, what, that is what grabs people's attention. Because if we as a church, as a community of people got this right, people would be breaking down our doors. P people, at the very least, would see something different and they'd be curious. Christianity would again be attractive. That, that quote that I showed you there was uh, from a guy again by the name of Francis Chan. And uh, you know, early on in, in, in my walk with the Lord, when I really kind of started to turn my life around, was in college and I started picking this guy's books up and I, I just really admired him for how blunt he was. I, I'd like read through every one of his books in like three months because I was just like, okay, I like this because it's impossible to read a book written by him that, that there isn't this call to action. You can't just read it and think, huh, that was nice. Like it's like, okay, I better get my crud together or I'm gonna be in trouble here. Um, and the more I read his stuff, then I started listening to more of his sermons, and then I started just kind of reading up on his life, and, and the more I was like, okay, like, this guy is the real deal. I read about how despite the fact that he has made millions, millions on, on his books, he and his wife have committed to living off $60,000 in Southern California. They give every other penny of it away, and 60 grand in Southern California is not a whole lot of money. I read about an occasion where, where him and his wife were feeling this prompting maybe to downsize their home and they didn't like take months and pray about it. They came home, he said, I was feeling this. His wife was like, yeah, I was feeling that too. And the next day their house was on the market. They downsized and gave all the money away. I read about how, how their, their house was just this revolving door of, of young people that were living with them that, that needed a place to live. And they just kind of included them and brought them in as a part of their family. I read on this one particular occasion where he, he, he talked about this. He, uh, he was in a gas station, he left, and as he was leaving, he passed by like this 300 pound dude that was all tatted up, you know, big beard, biker, you know, leather cuts on him and everything. And he got into his car and he literally, oh, it was, he said it was as close to an audible voice as he's ever heard from God, tell him to go back inside, give that guy a hug and tell him that Jesus loves him. And he went, what? And if you see Francis Chan, he's this little Asian guy. He's like, I'm, I'm gonna get punched in the face. I'm not doing that. 
He's arguing with God in his car and finally works up the courage and he goes back inside and he goes up to the guy and he's, Jesus loves you. And he said the guy just broke down and started bawling his eyes out. And the more I read about it, even though I was nowhere near that level of spiritual maturity, I was so attracted to it. I, I wanted it so badly for myself. And you know what I'd be willing to bet? Your story isn't that much different. In fact, I bet a number of people are literally sitting here this morning, and the reason you're sitting here this morning is because you saw such a difference in one person, in one couple, in one family, and you had to know where in the heck that was coming from. You had to know what the source of that type of life was. And conversely, guess what didn't grab your attention? Living an average good life. What grabs our attention are people doing things, living their life in such a way, living radically different from those around them. Even though you look at it sometimes, you're like, I am never gonna have the courage to do those things. Even though sometimes you're going, I don't even know if I agree with that type of behavior. You just know that there is something deep down that made you attracted to it, something that made you want to learn more. We touched on this passage of scripture last week. It says, and all the believers, talking about the early Christian church, all, all the believers, this early Christian church, met together in one place and shared everything that they had. And that literally means they shared everything they had. Everything was just treated. If you want to borrow my stuff, if you want to take my stuff, more power to you. If it helps you out, I'm for it. They sold their property and possessions, and this one really kind of grabs us, right? They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. When people actually had an urgent financial need, they didn't just place their hands on their shoulders and say, I'll be praying for you. Hope that money comes soon. No, they got their butts in gear, started selling things that were still of value to them, and then gave the money to those people so that their needs were actually being met. It continues. They worshiped together at the temple each day. Some of you are like, whew, that's a lot. Hard enough to get my husband here one day a week. Met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Their behavior was different. Their lives looked different than those around them. Their lives looked different after encountering Jesus, after putting their faith in Jesus than they did before. And look at what happens. And each day, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. New people, new people who did not previously wear that label of Christian were showing up and jumping on board with it. They're being saved. Their eternities were being transformed. They're seeing behavior that is so different from everyone else around them that they had to see what was going on and it didn't start with a compelling communicator. It didn't start with good music. It didn't start with good food. It didn't start with games. It started with people. It started with changed lives. It started with people living radically different. And this is what burns inside of me. This is what, in a lot of ways, propelled us to even start this church. That this church, that this community of people would be a group that lives so radically different from those around them that this community cannot help but notice. That people feel absolutely compelled to show up here on Sunday mornings because the people that show up here on Sunday mornings look so radically different from their neighbors and their coworkers and their friends and their family members and they have to figure out what is going on, what is different. A radically different life 
is contagious. It's so contagious. The 21st century American form of Christianity is not attractive. The reason that the first century church grew is because people were living radically different, not the same as everybody else with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. If we commit as a church to being a part of this movement that changes course, that responds to these promptings and these nudges that God puts on our hearts that oftentimes we're so quick to dismiss, Christianity will absolutely again be attractive. It'll be beckoning, it'll be enticing. Lance is uh, one of the new pastors that just came on staff here and uh, previously he had served at a church down in Antigua, Guatemala uh, called Shoreline City and one of the couples that attended there, uh, their names are Addison and Ronald Lopez. Uh, Addison moved down to Guatemala when she was in middle school with, uh, with her parents. Uh, her parents were one of those crazy couples that literally drop everything, pack up their whole family and just move to another country and they did it to start an orphanage and apparently uh, for Addison that was an attractive thing and it kind of rubbed off on her because now she's an adult married to her husband, Ronald, uh, and they have started a home, it's, it's really just their home, where they take in terminally ill children. They, they, they take them in whenever they see them. If, if, if there's a kid that, that has a need, these kids, they're basically left for dead. These kids that at times, after they're brought into their home, they, they, they die shortly thereafter, but they think, okay, these, this is still a child of God. We're gonna bring these kids into our home. Young couple too, crazy. Um, I wanna share with you one of the posts that Addison recently put on Facebook. I'd like to say she's my friend, but <laughs> I just kinda of know her from afar from following her on social media. And I'll do my best to get through this without crying. She says, I'm driving home from court today with three little girls sobbing in my back seat. The day started off normal, and by that I mean there are no normal days around here. I took our three-year-old to the medical forensic. They had to get photographic evidence of her sexual abuse. While I was there, they asked me about taking a 14-year-old who was six months pregnant. Doing the math, I figured we had room for one more, so off to the hospital I went to pick her up. Outside the hospital, I was met by the social worker and two other little girls, her sisters. As they cried, the social worker explained to me that they too were being sexually abused by the family member that left their sister pregnant, so she was about to take them to court. They would be sent to a different home. The youngest sister looked at me and with tears in her eyes, she begged, please, can I go with my sister? I held the corridors in my hand, for one. I had every excuse, not enough room, not enough funding outside of our intake profile, but as I watched these three sisters together, I knew I couldn't be the one to separate them. So I walked into the courthouse that's just two blocks away from the hospital and interrupting the hearing and session, I asked the judge to please change the orders. Sisters need to stay together. They were crying in the back seat when I first started writing this. They were scared, but eventually began giggling, and then the oldest one found a case full of movies underneath the seat. She picked out the Barbie movie. Can we watch this, she asked me innocently. I know that I could have said no today. And to be honest, it probably would have been easier. But God doesn't call us to easy. He's called us to care for his children. And for these sisters, that meant staying together. This is the kind of change that Jesus brings about, where we jump into what's hard rather than what's easy, because we know that his way is better than ours. And if we get this right, it will be scary what God will do through this church. Not just here in Grand Blanc, but around the world.
the, the ripple effect would be staggering. Christianity would certainly again become attractive, but I think it might just become irresistible.